0: Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today I had a chance to speak with Mark Schaefer about his new documentary, Exposing Mybridge. Here's how Mark describes the film. So this is a movie about Edward Mybridge, who's widely known as the father of cinema,
1: but whose story is as melodramatic and as fascinating as his uh, professional life has accomplished before he became the innovator or the pioneer of motion photography. He was a, a very well-regarded, celebrated landscape photographer of the American West. And so he's, he's us. He's not a dusty antique from the past. He's the beginning of now, I like to
0: say. I've always thought of myself as something of a student of 19th century photography and its effects on culture and the other arts. So it was a pleasure talking to Mark. I thought I knew a bit about My Bridge but Mark's film taught me many new things about him and about the ways that photography has shaped our sense of reality. Mark has made over 2,000 documentaries for PBS, National Geographic, Al Jazeera, and others. His first documentary feature, American Jerusalem, Jews in the Making of San Francisco, in 2013, exposed him to the work of Mybridge, and he built upon that interest that you'll hear in this film. Mark won the Writers Guild of America Screenplay Award for Mybridge, for Exposing Mybridge. And I do think that the way the film is constructed is not only visually interesting, but really does provide a unique narrative, opening up the entirety of Mybridge's varied career and his dramatic life. Exposing Mybridge will be playing at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival at the main on Monday, May 9th at 4.40. Also at the main on Tuesday, May 10th at 1.45. And finally, once again at the main on Friday, May 13th at 1.50. If you can't make it to Minneapolis, you can find other screenings at mybridgethemovie.com, which is one word, or Exposing mybridge. If you enjoyed this discussion, please do follow us, rate us, share us, even leave us a comment. It really helps other people who love documentaries find these conversations. And now my conversation with Mark Shaver about his film, Exposing Mybridge. Thank you for joining me today, Mark. Oh, you're welcome, Michael. It's my pleasure to be here. And congratulations on the film. I, I think it's a truly inquisitive documentary about a historical figure. I thought I knew a bit about him, but you taught me much more and you complicated the picture I had of him. And very importantly, I think you employ bridge to open up some important conversations around the nature of photography as science, as art, whether or not anything's ever objective. Thank you, that's what I hoped people would walk away with, is
1: a, a deeper understanding of our relationship to the machine and the machine-made image and how true it is and where its truth comes from.
0: Ever more important, why do you make documentary films?
1: I make docs because I've always had an interest in the world And this was a way that I could take that deep interest and apply it and try to challenge myself and uh, to understand the world in a a different way or a more deep way. I I early on was introduced after college to the power of television. I got a television job. And so that the power of, of the medium is seductive that I can influence the way people think about the world. I try to do that responsibly, but that is the truth of this field that I'm privileged to have the capacity to interpret the world for other people to help them see the world. I started in news, but I went into doc work because I've always been a why guy, I like to say. I've never been a what, where, when guy. And so news was really boring to me. I didn't really care what happened today, especially as the news processed it. I wanted to know why what happened today happened and and what maybe could be done differently So some of these bad things we heard on the news all the time, wouldn't keep happening. That drew me naturally towards a long form. And then as I did more and more of it, my interest in documentaries has evolved. I am now more than ever, which is still not as much as many interested in the craft of documentary and the creative part of it, the way we construct the story, the way it's effectively told, these are things that are really satisfying for a creative minded person. I started more with a content focus what are the important stories that have to be told? How can we get the word out? I was an investigative reporter, that kind of a thing. And I still have those impulses, and I want to tell stories about injustices. Now joining that kind of missionary zeal is an appreciation for the craft that's just
0: super fun to do yeah. and terrifying at the same time. So my bridges of subjects, I know your previous documentary, American Jerusalem focused on the history of the Jewish community in San Francisco. Now, Bridge is very associated with the city and the Bay Area more generally. But what drew you to him specifically? It started with that film
1: I, uh, to where I was introduced to him. I needed images of early San Francisco, and he was one of the primary photographers making images of San Francisco beginning in the 1860s, late 1860s. And uh, I had an archivist and she would bring images back from various archives where she was finding them. And I was forever drawn to certain ones that just had a kind of seductiveness about them. They were always by the same guy with the funny name, who I didn't know. I punched his name into Google and all of a sudden I was confronted with millions of hits and images and realized immediately that he was a very significant figure. And in fact, I knew his motion work that would pop up, I kind of lived in my subconscious. Oh, I know those pictures. And so there was a kind of mystery about him. And I started thinking, why don't I know more about this guy? He seems really important. I dug a little, I, I went to see what other documentaries had been done on him. And there wasn't a really major one. There was a, an art house documentary, very well respected from the early 70s. And there was a TV doc on BBC. And there were a lot of books written about him. And the books are great, by the way. I picked up one of them by Rebecca Solnit and read it and was just so blown away by the story she told. But the way she placed him in a historical context, he became this kind of mirror for all that was going on around that time. It just really blew me away. I thought, I want to tell the story and here are these books, but the books are telling his story with words and he's a visual artist and it seemed a really missed opportunity not to introduce people to his work through his work rather than through it in the interpretation of his work by writers. So those are the reasons I really dove in. And on a deeper level, what Solnit really got at and other scholars that I read about Mybridge, was this relationship to technology. It was a period when he came along with technological innovation and development that was changing the way we lived, and it was extremely familiar. It just was a very crude early example of what we're living through, especially in a place like the Bay Area where I live, where you're surrounded by the tech industry and how it's reshaping our lives. The other thing that happened as I got deeper into the research and started learning more, I began to realize that Mybridge's work wasn't what it appeared to be, that it had a, a kind of complexity about it that was both reflected a kind of a nature of photography that I hadn't really thought a lot about. And also was reflected in his actual way he manipulated pictures. And as a storyteller myself, who started in news, then now does nonfiction documentary, I'm doing this work in the era of Trump, right? So the idea of what is true is everywhere and it's being used for political purposes. But I had, over the course of my career, developed a certain level of discomfort over that question. I worked in news, people trusted us to tell, quote, the truth. And I quickly understood as I developed as a news producer, that we were producing a kind of version of truth. One that was incomplete, reflected the points of view of the tellers of those truths, who too frequently looked like me, white men, reflected sort of nationalist American points of view, and most importantly, in the commercial news media, reflected a perception of what the audience wanted to consume. And so there was a kind of pandering that occurred in the news world that disturbed me. And I felt very uncomfortable with the, quote, true world we were presenting. So when Mybridge's work began to introduce those elements and I began to see them in his photography, I was immediately drawn to that
0: theme and dove right in. Let's start with his name. I've always been puzzled a bit bit by how to pronounce it, where it came from. As you reveal, it's a made-up name. He's a a bit of a fictional character of his own making. He's truly a self-made man, down to the
1: name. He was born Edward Muggeridge in England, and he kept changing his name. He changed it about five times before he settled on Mybridge. He never told anybody why he changed his name. He did say at one point early in his life that he wanted to make something of himself where you would never hear of him again. So he had a kind of ego and an ambition that defined his life. I think adopting these names was very much part of that self-conscious part of his personality. In a strange way, like many artists, myself included, he both cared deeply about what other people thought about him and he could care less about what other people thought about him and he wanted to do his own thing.
0: And he kind of lived in that limbo. When he comes to the U.S., he's a bookseller for a while. His bookshop is right next to it, the daguerreotype shop, and he gets interested in photography. He comes to the Bay Area, some of his early work is about Native Americans. The subjects are Native American or American Indian peoples. In the context of other anthropological photography of the time, you, your experts suggest that he's relatively open-minded, maybe. You feature a surviving member of one of the Native Alaskan peoples, Richard Jackson, who says he finds... Mybridge's photos of likely his own ancestors, an honor, a gift, I think he says. Now, I don't think you would have had to look too far to find somebody on the other side of this debate, someone who says this is cultural appropriation, exploitation. And in fact, his work with the U.S. Army potentially is involved in genocide. So did you think about including a scholar who had a more aggressive stance, say, towards Mybridge's photography?
1: No, I didn't. The motivation for including Richard Jackson, who is a Tlingit from Alaska. Mybridge made the first photographs of Southeast Alaska, and also the first photographs of Tlingit people who are native to that region. Those photographs are the first photographs of Alaska, more generally, that were seen by the public. Mybridge's work on Native Americans is largely ignored, honestly. Despite all of the voluminous amount of work written about him, at most you get a conversation about the fact that he photographed the Modoc War in the early 1870s between the Modoc Indians in Northern California on the border of Oregon and the U.S. government, which had had a treaty. They'd moved them off their land and some had come back and were fighting the U.S. government because they didn't want to leave. And he was hired by the U.S. government to photograph that war. It was the first time a photographer was hired by the U.S. government in that capacity to photograph a war. So that gets talked about. But the fact that Mybridge's photographs just happen to have a lot of indigenous people in them just doesn't really get noticed. And I noticed it. I just noticed it. They started popping up in his pictures. Everywhere he went, there were these Native Americans. And again, it was this gift. That's the beauty of the camera. It's a witness of sorts. And so that's what was there. That's what was in front of Mybridge as he was going around the West, the American West. It's because we were in this moment where there's this encounter between people who have always lived there for many thousands of years after the new arrivals who are moving them off their traditional lands. I didn't feel we needed to have some. I honestly, interestingly, the fact that you asked me that question. I expected Richard to be highly critical. So it really, it was a very striking thing to be interviewing him and have him come with this very warm feeling. He calls it atu. That's the Clinkit the word for our special thing, a special gift. And it's a cultural totem. And each clan in the Klinkit culture has an Atwu, a physical object that sort of is their most cherished thing. And he's saying this photograph is his most cherished thing. And it really challenged me as a non-Indigenous person to rethink my assumptions. I thought, oh, he's going to say, oh, and he does say, by the way, in the movie, he does say that the United States really destroyed his culture and destroyed his people. It was a very miserable experience for his people. So he's not a Pollyanna. But when it comes to the photograph, which I thought might trigger uh, trauma or he might, like you say, he might say, you know, who's this white guy coming along taking pictures of us. It had exactly the opposite impact. Richard's not a scholar. I don't need to
0: have a scholar tell Richard he's wrong about his own feelings about a photograph. After this, Mybridge is often known for his photography of the American West, famously his shots of Yosemite. You include maybe some even better known photographs by Weston and Adams taken 60 or 70 years later. You do a nice job showing how he's actually photographing some of the same areas, but they're very different. Weston and Adams are much more, well, modern in some sense, right? Abstracted scenes, rock faces, dark and deep shadows. Mybridge, on the other hand, is about the details, the branches, the decay. Why did you decide to make this comparison? I was trying to find a way to establish early in the movie that the act of photography
1: was subjective, that it's not an act of collection, it's an act of creation. And that underpins the whole film. I needed a way to establish that idea for people so they would get it. And I've been hearing this from photography scholars, and I'm not a photography scholar, so it, it was kind of new to think about this stuff quite this way. But I knew I needed to somehow get people to understand this idea, and it's... Frankly, pretty subtle. People would say, see, MyBridge's pictures are different than, say, Carlton Watkins' pictures. And I'd be looking at them and they'd look totally identical to me. And they'd say, no, 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 no. You see how the top of the picture's gonna clip there and there's some dead branches in the MyBridge. And it's like, oh my God, nobody's ever gonna get this. And thankfully, I found Byron Wolf and Mark Klett, two photographers who specialize in something called re-photography who go around re-photographing historical photographs, and they've done a lot of work with Muybridge's photography, including Lake Tenaya in Yosemite. And so I basically revisited Lake Tenaya with them and had them observe. And then we showed in a kind of animated way, we reconstructed a panorama that they had created some time back of the scene. In which there are these three photographers who happen to take pictures of Lake Tenaya separated by all this time, Mybridge, Weston and, and Ansel Adams. When you're standing at the lake, you really see it because you can see everything that's around you. So you get a sense of what your choices are, what the scene is saying. Adams and Weston see the same thing, which is what most everybody would see, which is this super dramatic scene with a lake and this mountain in the distance. And it's super romantic and dramatic. And then you look at Mybridge's picture, and it's shot off to the left. It's a bunch of dead trees and some rocks in the water. It's bizarre. It it honestly, if you stand there and you imagine somebody actually chose to photograph that, it made me laugh. Like I said, Aaron, we had a chance to see that Mybridge was telling a story of his own making. There's something he saw in the world that he chose to frame a particular way and share. And it was an aesthetic set of choices. It was a content editorial set of choices. In the movie, you mentioned about the scholars perhaps being critical of Mybridge's work. We do mention that he produced propaganda and that he worked for powerful interests, including the U.S. Army and the railroads and others who were busy removing Native people from the land. So we don't dodge that. And and then that's another big, important piece of it. Mybridge has clients. He has people he works for who pay him to produce stories that serve their interests. And so all of this is of a piece. We're trying to explain how the crafting of a photograph is full of creative choices that tell stories in service of certain people's interests and points
0: of view. Early on in the film, amongst your experts, your scholars, critics, and photographers, there's one other uh, fan. At first, I was like, wow, he sort of looks like maybe what gary oldman will look like in a few years from now and then only did i realize oh that is gary oldman so uh and you use him very well i want to talk more about that in a second but how did he become involved in this project gary i when i was doing
1: the research this project took a long time to put together i started it in 2012. most documentary filmmakers who make independent documentaries many of us will have these very long timelines because of the fundraising involved is so difficult and mostly it's just a real pain in the ass that it takes, it's that hard. But there are some things that happened because of the time involved. And one of those was very early on, I Googling everything I could on Mybridge. I, I saw one tiny little item in like the Hollywood Reporter that Gary Oldman was going to make a movie about Edward Mybridge, uh, a fictional film. That he was directing it and he was writing it. And he had all these big stars lined up, including himself. And so I knew he was interested in Mybridge. And then, as I began doing more archival research, I was looking for collections that I could use in the film, and also just become familiar with the visual record that surrounded my bridge for making choices about how to visually tell the story. And I met some San Francisco collectors, and they had a number of very nice objects. And when it was time to roll into production, I got in touch with them and said, "I want to come film your objects." It's one of the things that I felt very strongly about: is that I wanted when possible to actually film the photographs rather than just use them digitally because I wanted people to experience the photographs as objects, as things that were created, that they were not representations of truth, all that theme that we've been talking about. And when I went back to my collectors and said, I'd like to come film your stuff, they said, oh, we sold it. And I said, oh, 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 uh, who'd you sell it to? And they said, oh, I can't tell you who we sold it to. But if you say their name, we can confirm. They said, it's a pretty well-known guy, and he's in Southern California. And I said, oh, Gary Oldman? They said, yeah, yeah, him. I I had a hard time getting to Gary. Very hard time, as you can imagine. But over the course of time, I started meeting more and more people. And one of the guys I met who's in the film, Luther Gerlach, is a photographer. He's a wet plate photographer, uh, which is the old-fashioned kind of photography that Mybridge did. And he told me in our conversation that he was a consultant on Oldman's film. And I said, oh, oh, oh. Well, do you have a way that I can reach Gary? Do you have an email? And so he gave me his email, and I started emailing him repeatedly with no response. And then out of the blue, one day I got an email back, and it was Gary Oldman replying. And he said, you know, oh, I've been off filming. He was off filming Mank. I'm off been off filming. And off the grid, I'd love to talk to you about Mybridge. So we had a nice conversation. He was unbelievably helpful and knowledgeable. And he brought to the conversation something different than the scholars or than Richard Jackson did, which was the insight into Mybridge as an artist, because he's an artist. And because he interprets people for a living, he embodies them. He just has a different way of communicating about him than scholars do or even writers.
0: Yeah, I think there's the two things. The one is he identifies him as basically a director at one point. He also will recreate scenes, and he's a professional actor. Mybridge is put on trial because his wife conceives a child seemingly by another man. Mybridge shoots that man dead unapologetically. Gary imagines what's it like in the jurors in the jury room. He recreates Mybridge's whale upon being found innocent. It's really fabulous. It wasn't something I anticipated. You know, I
1: come out of the news documentary background. So my approach to making documentaries is largely interview-driven often. It's certainly scene focused if I'm making a current events documentary. But in this case, I was just sitting people down and having conversations with them. I didn't think I had a little thought, but it, it didn't last, that I would have Gary perform. But when you interview Gary Oldman, he just is a performer. So he naturally would perform in his conversations while at the same time being just unbelievably well-informed. I mean, as well-informed as the scholars, because he'd written the screenplay. Uh, and you're right, you know, there's this scene in the courtroom and all of that comes from actual press coverage, the wailing, the judge saying he take the man away. All these things were written in the press at the time. So he wasn't just making this stuff up, but he had a way of describing it and then just playing the
0: role. That's extremely entertaining. So, a big turning point in Mybridge's life, amongst others that we've already discussed, is he meets Leland Stanford, the rail tycoon, the California politician. He hires Mybridge to photograph his house, his family. These are the photos I had not seen before. These are amazing. They're like the Gilded Age on glass. And at the same time, you, you mentioned that Leland Stanford's relationship to Mybridge was king like, he was a patron. And, and these reminded me of royal portraits of Velasquez, Las Meninas, comes to mind. In gaining a patron, it's almost like he became a technician in someone else's science project, though, right? There's a downside to this relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one more dimension to the Muybridge story that's just so damn entertaining. You know, that's the part where his personal life's as melodramatic as his professional one is as distinguished. He gets this patron... Who's a famous bully. Nobody likes Leland Stanford, right? He's called the Octopus or he runs a company called the Octopus at the time. He's a dour guy, his own partners, the big four who built the cross-country railroad, the Western side of the transcontinental railroad. They don't like him, but he's this extremely wealthy, extremely powerful guy, not just a railroad baron. He'd been governor of California as a Republican. He would become Senator of California and he loved horses. He decides to ask Edward Mybridge to photograph a horse at a gallop, which was impossible to do at the time because photography moved really slowly. That's why when you look at old pictures, there's so many people are blurry in them. That's because they just simply move their face during the exposure. And the way you would make up pictures by your hand, you would remove the lens cover and just sit there for a few seconds, counting tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, and then put the lens cap back on. If anything's moving in the scene, it disappears sometimes, or it certainly becomes blurry. So the idea of photographing a horse was insane. But Leland Stanford wanted to do that because it was unknown whether a horse's hooves all were off the ground at the same time. And he wanted to answer that question with photography. And so he approached MyBridge. He had known Mybridge, as you point out from these earlier photographs. Mybridge had been hired to photograph his home in Sacramento, and also I think maybe in San Francisco, both. But I think the pictures we're looking at in the film are his Sacramento home. They're striking. They do what photographs do they make you feel the moment. You feel the power of this class uh, and the class difference. What I related so strongly to is this sort of patron artist relationship that really defines them. Who controls? The art, whose agenda raids, who gets credit for what happens, right? This becomes the big story of MyBridge in Stanford. They achieved this incredible breakthrough where MyBridge is able with Stanford's help and his engineers and his financing is able to take these pictures of a galloping horse. They're a phenomenon. The whole world sees them. it's, it's a huge deal. Mybridge goes back to Europe, he's fetid. Remember, this is a guy who has an enormous ego and great ambition to be a great person. And now he's a star, he's a celebrity on the continent and he's wallowing, he's just loving this experience. And he writes this letter home to Stanford's secretary sort of boasting of it. Undoubtedly it gets to Stanford and Stanford doesn't like it. He resents Mybridge's success. He sees Mybridge as a tool As just as you put it, as a technician, as the word he uses, as an instrument of my own ideas, he says in a letter to his personal position, who he hires to write a book, taking all the credit for the horses. (laughs) Myron is in Europe preparing to give a speech to the Royal Society of London, a very big deal. Again, as only Gary Oldman can, he says, it's like the Oscar, you know, he's right there, he's about to give the Oscar. And this book appears and he's called into the office at the Royal Society and he's confronted and asked why his name isn't on the cover of the book. He's never seen the book before. He it comes as a surprise. And he says in a letter that he never sends, a later letter to Mrs. Stanford, he says, "In my time in London came to a disastrous close. And he leaves, sulks out of town. He had hoped to stay in Europe to continue his motion studies with new patrons. That was his plan. He can't stay. He comes back to the United States, a broken man. Stanford breaks him. The betrayal is just so awful and so inhumane. And it speaks again, though, you know, who who deserves credit for this achievement? The man who paid for it or the man who did it?
0: Once we arrive at this point where Stanford hires Mybridge for the motion studies, I really felt the change of the film. It seems like the photographic intensity picks up, the cuts become quicker, the music picks up as well. I understand this was something to do with the material at hand, but I also couldn't help but feel that you were sort of recreating that move from the early to mid 19th century, which was a largely a slower agrarian society to the late 19th century, where rural people start moving to cities, railroad, electricity, telegraph, photography, all seem to speed up time and break down and collapse space. It was not intentional in the way you describe it.
1: It was on my mind. In fact, in the original grant proposal that I wrote to the National Endowment for the Humanities, I actually said that what I was going to do was start the film really slowly with landscape photographs and edit them in a slow pace. And then I was going to pick up the editing as motion enters the scene to kind of mimic the content, the editorial with the creative. But, you know, I had a wonderful editor, Elizabeth Haviland James, and she didn't really do that per se. It wasn't on her mind. I said it to her a number of times, but she didn't really execute it, you know? But I think just the natural storyline, we go from these quiet, long pictures. And that's the other piece of it is that there's a big challenge for us to make a film about still photography, to think about how do we hold the viewer's attention? How do we give a group of 100 people in a movie theater a, a singular experience that somehow speaks to all of them? You know what I mean? When you go to a museum, you're standing by yourself, standing in front of a photograph, let's say. You spend as much time as you care to. You look at whatever you feel like looking at. Everybody has a different choice. They all move on, right? We're curating that experience for you on the screen. And with the landscape photographs, we wanted them to hang long enough that you could see them. You could take a moment and see them, which fights the natural pace of film. Film wants to move faster than that. And so that was a challenge, but the natural storyline shifts. It goes to motion and uh, motion is motion, it's faster. And the pictures become less about the photographs themselves, a beautiful, say waterfall in Yosemite, for instance, and they become uh, frames of motion in a sequence in which the context is removed. They're, they're against either blankness or then eventually they're against grids, but you don't have to sit there examining motion in quite the same way. And as you point out, yes, and then we start moving the pictures because they are the beginnings of motion pictures. And so as soon as the pictures start moving, the energy picks up. That drives the music. The music is responding to mood, right? Chad Cannon, the composer, is fantastic. He's looking at the material. He's interpreting it. So it had a natural
0: evolution. But it's funny that you pointed out because it was very much explicit and became implicit, Another thing you focus on is the mechanics of the artistry, I think. You know, early on, you talk about Yosemite Trip. It's this huge team, multiple cameras, tripod, dangerous chemicals, glass plates. It's a big effort. And then I think most of us have seen the pictures of the horses, but I never knew how it was done. And you do a great job of recreating the blanched wall, the marble dust, and the tricked-out guillotine shutters on the cameras. Movies look so simple,
1: right, when you watch them. Even for me, and I make them, they're not simple. Even movies like this that look like, how could they not be simple? There's photographs, right? There's so many creative choices that you have to make, and you're trying to make choices that you think are going to most help the viewer engage and lean in and, and be moved and informed. And very early on, I'm mashing all this stuff together about Mybridge, And one of the big things about Mybridge, obviously, is that he broke the speed barrier with photography. And then I learned early on in my research that he had left this huge legacy and that the people who did the Matrix movie, the first Matrix movie, the special effects guys had based a very famous special effect called bullet time on MyBridge. That movie won the Academy Award for special effects. And the most famous special effect in the movie is when Keanu Reeves is spinning around and bullets are flying past him. They called it bullet time. And I talked to those guys and they said, yeah, we were basing it loosely on my bridge. And I thought to myself, oh, I want to do a bullet time sequence out of the horses. I want to be very meta. And I'm going to tip my cap to Muybridge's legacy while illustrating how he did it in the first place. That's where it began. It was very complicated, difficult scene to shoot. I had to find and then rent and then get from LA a rig. That had 84 cameras on it that were in a semicircle across from this wall that we had built by set constructors. And then we would run the horse past these cameras over and over and over again, trying to recreate what MyBridge had done, but with this modern technology that allowed me to spin the horse, which is the bullet time effect, which MyBridge's cameras he did it in a way, but not with horses later. And so that's where that that came from, that that original impulse. And it and then as we begin constructing the film, we were writing as we go. That's how it works. And we're trying to figure out where do we tell you about the technology that he's using? Do we tell you in Yosemite and in 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 the early phase when he's doing landscape work? Do we introduce this whole explanation of how wet plate photography is made? Which made some sense because we're explaining it's very slow. We do say that in the early stages and we show you rivers that are milky and out of focus to make that point. So we toyed with putting that information there, but that was slowing down the story and it was getting too expositional in the early stages and it was kind of boring. And then we decided to have our cake and eat it too, by taking that exposition and embedding it inside the horse, right? Because it made sense it was logical we were saying it was too slow the cameras were too slow to capture this force so it opened this notion we could we quick cut how it was done and my producer Sergino rusblad came up with a great term for it. i don't know if it's his but i hadn't heard it before campfire storytelling where all our sit down interviews are sort of talking one after another finishing each other's sentences bouncing back and forth to one another explaining the process so there's a kind of energy in there. And the process is interesting and it's surprising. People don't know this stuff. And by embedding that kind of explanation in the story of him actually trying to do it, it allowed us to, or I think it achieved what I was after, which was to produce a tension. I wanted there to be a feeling of uncertainty that what he was trying to do was difficult. Could he do this? That this was hard. And so it had lots of value to put the explanation where we did and the explanation itself. I think I, a lot of people tell me they love that part of the movie.
0: I certainly did. I, I found it eye-opening. What an incredible amount of work and engineering evolved to create those photos. So there are a lot of ways to talk about objectivity, One of the ones that you dig into very fruitfully is around race, class, and gender. The motion studies that were done at the University of Pennsylvania, Thomas Aikens, Mybridge's influence on whom you can see, certainly helps bring him in after he returns from England into the University of Pennsylvania to do time, motion, body studies there. Despite the supposed scientific neutrality, they're inevitably bound up in the hierarchies of the day. We've talked a little bit about race. So when it comes to gender and class, just that mixture in terms of who's being photographed and the things they're doing in the photographs, it's very revealing. Again, one of these gifts, as I
1: got attracted to this idea of manufactured reality, sort of underscored his landscape work and the idea of who he's speaking to and on whose behalf. When I began to see my words through that lens, along comes this final stage of his life where he's been betrayed by Leland Stanford, He's limped back to the United States. We don't say this in the film, but he sues Stanford. And of course he loses. He's going around doing these public lectures where he produces these little moving picture shows. They're illustrated versions of his photographs. They're more like cartoons than movies. These are very important. They're the the sort of first motion pictures based on live action photography. So they're very important DNA in the development of cinema. But he's really a defeated guy at that point. And the University of Pennsylvania, which is a leading research institution at the time, is persuaded by Aikens and another gentleman to bring him in and let him do his more of his motion studies there. And they're very excited by this idea because they think they're gonna be creating new knowledge by doing so. These guys thought they were gonna go make science. And there's nothing more objective than science, right? That's the sort of standard of objectivity. And they were going to do it with these machines. At one point, Stanford says in the movie, the machine cannot lie, which is a very important idea. The machine is going to trump human subjectivity by just showing us the world the way it is. And here was really what might have been the very first truly photographic scientific study, where the camera was employed for the advancement of science or so they thought. And this is the University of Pennsylvania, I believe, some of the most respected, uh, quote, experts out there. And then I learned that the experts, well, they're all white men, of course, but the experts were members of a society, an early society that was sort of a forerunner to eugenics. So they were all scientific racists. They're living in Victorian America, and so they have very strong views on gender, and it's a class society. And then you throw in Mybridge's filter. He's this kooky, mischievous artist. He's really quite subversive to his authority figures. He always is, all the way through. He's out grabbing stuff he feels like shooting. which doesn't make any sense based on the mission. So you have all this combustible mix of things. And, and he's still known to this day as the father of motion studies. He's celebrated them as such by scientists today. And so it was a shocker to hear and how scholars had dissected him and found out that his work was manipulated in ways that really made it bad science. And that from today's vantage point and today's understanding, you can see that there's all these biases worked into the motion studies. Men do one thing. Women do something else. Women act ladylike. Men act masculine. They tell all these little gender-based stories. The women are poor. They don't have work opportunities, the models, they're exploited that way. The men are students at Penn and many of them get naked. That's a big part of this. Many of the images are of nudes and they're not vulnerable in quite the same way as the women are. And so getting naked in front of a camera has a totally different meaning. And so this whole notion of removing the human factor by virtue of it being science, by the experts who know more than we do, and the employment of a machine, which of course can't be
0: questioned. But once that all fell apart, it was a perfect close to this inquiry. As you note, the, the men are University of Pennsylvania students. They're Ivy League students. They're almost exclusively go- therefore going to be upper class men. The women largely are working women who need the money or artists, models. Uh, and the overlap there with sex workers at the time. There's a lot of overlap. So they're very different groups of people too. And then you have the content, of course, the men are asked to do more athletic things and the women are asked to dance and do domestic work.
1: That's right. It's supposed to be a motion study, but there's a fair amount of craziness going on here from a point of view of a motion study. Some of the studies, they are sequences of people moving shot with a bank of cameras. That's how he did it. And so he would then cut and paste them into the order in which they were photographed into these grids. And so you see a sequence of the body moving or perhaps an animal. And some of them seem to make a lot of sense. A guy running, somebody walking, somebody climbing upstairs or climbing downstairs. Okay, it does still, okay, yeah, that's motion. I get that. A guy jumping over a bar, okay? And there was some real value to those images because they captured motion. They froze motion that couldn't be frozen by the human eye. So for artists, for scientists, for others, these were very influential. But then there was a whole lot of his pictures that on a scale went from oddly questionable in terms of the science to just nuts, wacko. On the oddly questionable side, you might have a naked woman scrubbing a floor with a rag. Like who's studying that motion? And why is that woman naked And why is she scrubbing the floor? A lot of domestic tasks with women. But then you would move further and further towards the absurd, and you'd get, uh, say, a picture of one woman hitting another woman with a broom. Just imagine, this is supposed to be a science study at University of Pennsylvania. Who would imagine that picture, that sequence being taken? And then you would maybe go to one woman pouring water on another woman's head, both naked, by the way. And at the time, people were going to jail for taking pictures of naked women. So it was really quite salacious behavior. All the way over, let's say, to two women having a tea party, two naked women serving tea to one another. There's really almost no motion in the sequence. There's a cup being moved from one woman to the other. It makes no sense, none. And yet, the University of Pennsylvania marshals on, publishes, the studies, including these pictures that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. But it does so in a way, again, to the class issue. At the time, there are these sort of vice squad guys running around who believe that working class men cannot control their urges, their primal urges, but wealthy men can. We'll take these pictures, which are salacious and pornographic, and we'll distribute them, but we'll sell them to places like Harvard University. Or the Vanderbilts, who literally did buy the book. So you, there's a list of these subscribers, and they're these all these super wealthy men, and they priced it very high, so it would stay out of the hands of the ordinary people. As one of my scholars said, I didn't use this bite in the film, but as she said in the interview with me, Mybridge's Pennsylvania studies are better examinations of culture than they are of motion.
0: As you noted, MyBridge's influence, uh, obviously, one of the founders of Motion Pictures, which is the Prince and the Lemires and Edison and commercialized later, but also lives on, as you already mentioned, Matrix, but a lot of artists, especially it seems like in the 50s and 60s. So Francis Bacon, Saul LeWitt, David Hockney, people who were kind of adjacent to the rise of pop art at the time, which I think is interesting because that's a movement that did rethink the role of photography and culture.
1: One of the things about Nybridge that's so compelling to me and made me want to make the movie is how he lives on in our culture. He's not an antique. He's not a guy you go back and you look at and you say, oh, wasn't that nice? Look what they did way back when. He continues to be discovered and he continues to be used by universities and others to educate upcoming artists. And he remains an influence in the culture. Jordan Peele has a movie coming, one of his horror movies, called Nope. And if you find the trailer for Nope, it starts with a sequence of Mybridge's horses. The actress is talking about the pictures. Now, the facts are incorrect, I must say, because they just are. But that's okay. The spirit of the scene is genuine. But the fact that they're using Edward Mybridge speaks to his continuing influence. Or I found uh, Rick and Morty cartoons. Where he was on the wall behind them. Or I found, like you say, all these modern artists who were using him. It's not in the movie, but I found a 1961 Department of Defense film called It Started with My Bridge about how cameras get used for a scientific study in this case for the making of missiles. So mybridge, I like to say, is hiding in the shadows of our modern culture. Every now and then he peeks out if you know what to look for, you can see him. Sometimes he's more obvious than other times, but it's remarkable how influential he
0: continues to be in shaping the way we experience the world. He really opened my eyes to his influence and to the complexity of his legacy. So I really appreciate that, Mark. Thank you so much. And I encourage everyone to check out Mark's film at the Minneapolis St. Paul International Film Festival. Thanks again, Mark. Really appreciate your time today. It's
1: been my pleasure, Michael. I love to talk about this film and I'm just grateful to you for having me and I hope folks find a way to see it.
0: Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? I I dipped into the history bucket rather than the
1: obscure bucket. The one that that came to mind for me was Hearts of Darkness, made in 1991 by uh, Fax Barr and George Kickenlooper and it's about the making of the movie Apocalypse Now. I would have been, you know, in my late 20s when I saw it and still sort of having romantic ideas about documentary filmmaking and about filmmaking in general. This kind of hit it out of the park. I actually like the documentary better than the movie, which is saying a lot because Apocalypse Now is a fantastic movie but there's just something magical about that film. It's not produced in a very elaborate way. It's constructed out of interviews and some field footage and some clips from the film, and the interviews are shot really in a basic manner, but it tells just an amazing, crazy, fanatical story about Francis Ford Coppola, who's vulnerable and insecure. I often imagine these big, successful stars like Francis Ford Coppola don't really have insecurities or don't really struggle. So I I, I really love watching that movie.